Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. And uh, the rest of you can open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 18. <clears throat> Genesis 18 um, will definitely help you to have a Bible open in front of you as we hear the word preached this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible, we do have a Bible for you, paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you. If you're a visitor here and you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that Bible home with you if you'd like. But uh, if you're looking at the paperback Bible, <clears throat> the text is on page 8. <clears throat> Genesis 18, we'll be reading from verses 16 to 33. Um, maybe you've heard this uh, very famous ad slogan. <clears throat> I think most of you are probably familiar with it. It says, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And kind of the idea of that ad slogan is that you can go to Las Vegas and engage in whatever behavior you want to, and nobody will know. And you can come back home, and it will be like nothing happened. So the ad slogan is kind of inviting that. I found the rationale for the ad slogan from the ad company, and that's exactly what they said they were intending. Now, if uh, that ad agency were around back in the days of Abraham, they might have worded the slogan like this, what happens in Sodom stays in Sodom. Sodom is a city with a reputation, just like Las Vegas is today. Um, my apologies if you're from Las, Las Vegas and you liked living there. Um, nonetheless, I think it is true, as the ad slogan tells us, that Las Vegas has a reputation as well, just like Sodom did. And this ad slogan kind of begs this, this question. It, it kind of it suggests this thing that we ought to think about a little bit, and that is this, that is it possible to engage in certain immoral behaviors that will somehow remain a secret? You know, is, is, are there really like free-for-all zones where, where you can go and you can just do whatever you want, you can just be as immoral as you want, and somehow it will remain a secret? Is it possible that our indiscretions and our sins will escape God's notice. Is it possible, really, that you can defy God and rebel against him and get away with it? Is that really possible? Because that's what that ad slogan wants you to believe. But is that what the scriptures teach us? Well, we're going to uh, find out about that in Genesis 18 here this morning. We're returning to this series, The Life of Abraham. We've just been going through the book of Genesis over the last several months. And uh, we departed from this series for the last couple of Sundays, as Pastor Brian has been preaching to us. And so we're going to pick up today where we left off uh, a few Sundays ago, right in the middle of chapter 18. So let me just kind of get you caught up on what's going on here. You might recall that chapter 18 started with a visit of three visitors who came to see Abraham and Sarah. Maybe you'll remember that they responded very quickly with some extremely generous hospitality for their three visitors. And these three visitors came and repeated a promise that they, or that God had been saying over and over again, which is that Sarah was going to have a child. And that promise came as a, maybe kind of an astonishing reminder because they, that is Abraham and Sarah, had been waiting 25 years for a child. Uh, and so you'll see, hopefully, how reading through Genesis is very appropriate for the Advent season. 
Uh, Advent is about waiting for the coming of Jesus. Abraham and Sarah had a long time waiting for this child to be born to them. So very appropriate for the Advent season. Um, so the announcement is made, the reminder is made to Sarah, you're gonna have a child again. And you might recall uh, at the end of that passage that we looked at last time that Sarah laughed when, he, when she heard that. It was kind of a laugh of cynicism. She didn't really believe it. And uh, God kind of confronted her. You laughed about that, Sarah, didn't you? And Sarah said, no, I didn't laugh. And he said, yes, you did. You did laugh. And that's the way the passage ended. And God said this wonderful promise. He said, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for me to do? <clears throat> so this is where we're picking up. It's right in the middle of this kind of uh, encounter between these three visitors in Abraham and Sarah. And we're going to learn something here today about God's judgment and how he treats the wicked. So, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read Genesis 18, 16 through 33. I'm having some trouble advancing my slide here, Dustin. So, <clears throat> let's begin reading. Genesis 18, starting with verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. <clears throat> so the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do, <clears throat> do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom, 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10. I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. 
Holy Spirit, come please now and open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. All right. Well, let's take a look at this uh, very interesting passage, a somewhat well-known passage in uh, the book of Genesis. A number of different topics uh, are hit on in this passage, and so we're going to consider three this morning. And the first thing we want to consider is the reality of judgment, the reality of judgment. Um, So, Remember these three visitors who came to visit Abraham and Sarah at the start of chapter 18, and you'll notice here in verse 16, as this passage begins, it says, then the men set out from there. Well, you might recall that we considered a little bit who these three visitors were, and my conclusion was that those three visitors were actually um, God himself and two angels who here are referred to as the men. This is why I don't think it's proper to think of those three visitors as some kind of manifestation of the Trinity, as much as we might like to see that. Here, two of these individuals are described as just mere men, uh, perhaps angelic men, but that's what the men is referring to here in verse 16. So the men set out from there, and they look down toward Sodom. Well, that's very appropriate to say looked down. Actually, um, Abraham, Sarah, and these men are in the, uh, at a place called the Oaks of Mamre, and that was on the west side of the Dead Sea. Sodom lay across the Dead Sea on the east side of the Dead Sea, but Sodom is about a thousand feet below the Oaks of Mamre. So this is not a figurative statement. They're not looking down in condescension. They're actually looking down upon Sodom. They're standing up, looking across the Dead Sea, and looking at this city. And then in verse 17, we're told here that the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? So here's the Lord speaking to these two men, and he wonders if he should reveal to Abraham what it is he's about to do. Now, what is it that he's about to do? And what God is talking about here is that he is about to come to Sodom and rain down fire and brimstone and judgment upon this city. Now, you've heard that phrase, fire and brimstone. You've heard about fire and brimstone preachers. Well, that phrase kind of comes from actually chapter 19, but it comes from this story about Sodom. And so if you look down to verse 20, you'll see what the Lord continues to say. He says, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. That's why God is going to come and judge Sodom. That's why he's going to bring this fire and brimstone. This is God acting in judgment. There's a sinful city, and he is going to bring that place to an end. God in his judgment. Now, here is where we often find people object, and they read these kinds of passages, and they say there is just so much judgment in the Bible, and it just seems like God is so bad-tempered just seems like he's so willing and ready to pull the trigger in judging people he doesn't like. That's kind of the characterization sometimes of the Scriptures. And so here we go again, God being angry. And so sometimes people resist the Scriptures and they resist the Christian faith because of that. But friends, I want to suggest to you that you want judgment and justice, not nearly as much as God, but you do want judgment and justice. All of us want to see in certain places, 
judgment to be done. It's really not fair to act like you're this person who just never judges anybody. You do. You judge people. Sometimes those judgments are not right, but sometimes those judgments are right. When someone does something evil and you call it evil, that's a judgment, and that's a right judgment, and it's okay. But nobody wants to see somebody engage in some kind of wicked, destructive, violent, oppressive action and get away with it. You don't want to see that happen, and neither do I, and neither does God. One of my favorite movies is a, a movie about a couple of parents who have a teenage son. And in the movie, the son gets shot and he's murdered. And, of course, the parents are devastated. And we learn as the movie goes on that the killer of the son gets freed on bail. And the parents are out walking around town and they keep running in to this guy who killed their son. And sometimes he's walking down the street with his arm around his girlfriend. And he's laughing. And he's giggling. And he's living a happy life. And then the parents find out that, well, actually the charge against this guy is going to be reduced. And he might not do much time in prison if he goes to prison at all. And the parents are absolutely enraged. And as you're watching the movie, you kind of tap into that, and you feel their rage. You feel their anger. Why are they enraged? Why do you feel enraged? Because you want justice. You want judgment on that killer. And what we find in this movie, actually, is that because justice is not done by somebody else, they take judgment into their own hands. And they go, and they take care of that guy. And it just raises the question, did they do the right thing? The system wasn't working for them. So they killed the killer. See, that's what happens. That's what can happen if there's no ultimate justice. If God isn't going to do anything about the evil that is committed in the world, well, you can see why someone might be persuaded that I've got to do this myself. And so there's a guy named Miroslav, excuse me, Miroslav Volf um, who says this. He says, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. That what motivates us not to take violence in our own hands is knowing that God is going to bring judgment. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. So, yeah, God is judging Sodom. That's right. He judges evil. He's against wickedness. He's against evil. That's a good thing. And so let me just show you here why Sodom deserves this judgment. We've already seen it said here that their sin is very grave. It says in verse 20, well, scriptures are repeatedly telling you how bad a place Sodom is. If we go back to Genesis 13, 13, <clears throat> the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. We see in Ezekiel 16, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom, she and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They didn't take care of those who were needy in their community. They ignored them in their luxury and in their prosperity. Jeremiah 23, <clears throat> in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. Actually, all of them become like Sodom. This reminds me of Sodom. 
God says. Adultery, encouraging evil, no one repenting. <clears throat> Isaiah 3.9, for the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. In Sodom, they proclaimed their sin. They talked about their sin. They were proud of their sin. They laughed at their sin. They didn't hide it. They didn't turn from it. They celebrated it. Jude 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. So you can see there's a description of a number of different kinds of sin that take place in Sodom. Some sexual sins, but also sins of injustice and not caring for the poor and the needy. This is Sodom. This is how Sodom is presented to us in the Bible. A paradigm of self-destructive depravity. A symbol of total and irrevocable judgment. That's Sodom. Now you might be thinking to yourself, I'm sure glad I don't live in Sodom. But friends, let me suggest that there is enough sin in Muncie and Yorktown to justify the same kind of judgment. Look what Jesus says here in Luke chapter 17. Jesus says, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, we'll see about that in chapter 19, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus is saying, when I come again, it's going to be like the judgment of Sodom. There's going to be a resemblance there. There is going to be a final judgment, not just a judgment on Sodom, but a judgment of the entire human race, and that's coming when the Son of Man comes again. That day is coming. I don't know when, but Jesus says it's coming. Now, people very often, they just think, oh, that's silly, that's old Bible stuff. <clears throat> There's not going to be any judgment. Don't worry about it. I assure you that the people in Sodom thought the same thing. There's not going to be any judgment. That's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Whose business is it of anybody else's what I do with my life? This makes me happy. I'm going to do it. And judgment came, and judgment will come at the end of the age. Judgment is real. Second thing, <clears throat> the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. This is important to consider because what makes us uneasy about this whole notion of judgment is this question or this concern about what if, what if judgment is wrong? What if judgment that is rendered somehow misses it? What if the innocent get punished? You know, that, that's what makes us sometimes slow to embrace this idea of judgment. We don't want to see the innocent get punished. Nobody wants to do that. And so that's why it's important to consider the righteousness of God. God is righteous. What that means is that God does everything right. There are no mistakes in what God does, even in the administration of justice. So we're going to consider this in two ways. God's righteousness, first of all, as displayed in his character. We learn some wonderful things here about God's righteous character. Going back to verse 20, uh, the Lord says <clears throat> that this outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is very great. Their sin is very grave. That word for outcry is a word that is used in many other places in the Old Testament for an expression of desire that God would bring justice for the oppressed. That's often the context of this term. And so this outcry, the use of this word here, suggests that not only are these various sins being committed, but there are injustices 
and oppressions going on in the city of Sodom. And this outcry somehow has come to God's ears. And so, you know, maybe it's just that God knows it, but I think it's probably more likely that people are calling out for justice in Sodom. They're crying out. There's, there's an outcry. There's uh, a, a, an expression of woe and sadness because there's so much injustice going on in Sodom, and so they're calling out to God for help, and we see that God hears that prayer. Now, God hears all prayers, but I think God's ear is particularly sensitive to cries about oppression and injustice. He hears those prayers. He he hears the prayers of the wrongly accused person who's in prison for something he didn't do. He hears those prayers of the, the battered wife, the abused child in a home. Nobody hears them, but They're crying out to God. God does. He hears their outcry. He hears the cries of the persecuted believers throughout the world. He hears the cries of minorities in various societies who are being discriminated against. They cry out for justice, and God hears. So we see something here about God's merciful character in hearing this outcry. But then in verse 21, It says, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. So this is God speaking to Abraham. He says, I'm going to have to go down to Sodom and check this out. And then it says, if not, I will know. Now, uh, you know, more skeptical readers of this passage might say, well, so what is this saying? Like God didn't know what's going on in Sodom until he goes down to check it out? You know, is God deficient in his knowledge somehow? He can't know what's going on in another place? I mean, there are those who read that and say, you see, God doesn't know everything. There are people who say that, theologians who say that. But that's just missing the point of this passage. All this passage is saying is that God is not going to administer justice until he has investigated thoroughly. God is going to make sure that judgment is deserved before he brings it out. That's the point here, that God is righteous, that God does not administer justice unjustly. He doesn't bring judgment when it's not called for. He always does what is right. And so that's why Abraham, when he begins interceding on behalf of Sodom, if you look at verse 25, he says, far be it from you to do such a thing, God, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. In other words, you're not going to kill the innocent. You're not going to render an unfair judgment so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham's not asking if that's true. This is a a rhetorical question. He's saying, I know you're going to do what's just, God. I know you're going to do what's righteous. I trust in your righteous judgments. And so, friends, we always have to remember in any judicial case, whatever it might be, We've been hearing about many of them in the news lately. Whatever your feelings are about verdicts in certain cases, you just have to know, friends, that you and I, we don't have all the facts. But God does. And he always renders judgments in a righteous way. This is what Deuteronomy 32 says. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So we can trust God's judgment. If he's going to judge Sodom, Sodom deserves it. You don't have to worry about that being a wrong judgment. But let's consider another aspect of the righteousness of God, and that's righteousness required 
of God's people. Let's back up again here to verse 18. Here's this conversation Abraham's having with these two men. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Verse 18 He repeats the promise, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. That's just repeating the promise in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Then he goes on, and he says, I've chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised him. God chose Abraham. Abraham, by his grace, he brought Abraham into relationship with him, but he brought him into relationship with him for a purpose, and that is that Abraham, his children, his household, and the nation that comes from him will give themselves to doing righteousness and justice in the world. There's no excuse for a Christian or a believer in the God of the Bible to be uninterested in those kinds of things. What God is saying here is that he's kind of drawing a contrast. He's saying to Abraham, I'm about to judge Sodom for their wickedness. Abraham, you're different than Sodom. I'm calling you to set a contrast to Sodom. Your life needs to be distinguished from that of Sodom. You are not to be absorbed into the thinking of the ways of Sodom. You're to be a light to the nations. I'm calling you to be separate, to be different, to set an example. Friends, that's what distinguishes the lives of Christians today. We are distinguished not by how much we're like the world, but by how distinct we are from it. And there's this temptation, I think, among many Christians and churches that we want so badly for the world to like us. And we allow ourselves to be absorbed into their way of thinking. But friends, in the way you spend your time, and the way you spend your money, and the way you spend the Lord's day, and the way you talk to your friends, and the way you deal with interpersonal conflict, the opinions that you hold about what's going on in our world, all of these things need to be distinct from the way the world does it. You're not to be like the world. Are we to love the world? Are we to engage with the world? Yes, but we're to be distinct from it. This might make you seem a little weird sometimes, uh, but it also might be the means by which God uses to bring people into relationship with him. Also, Michael Goheen says this, Abraham, his family, and the nation that will issue from him are chosen to participate in God's mission, to enjoy God's redemptive blessing, and to walk in the way of the Lord so that the nations might participate in that blessing. So that's what God is saying here to Abraham. He considers him responsible to act righteously as one who is in covenant relationship with the Lord. So the righteousness of God, there is the reality of judgment. It's coming, but it's going to be done by a righteous God who's going to do it right. And then we have one more thing to consider, and that is the request of Abraham. Let's look at Abraham's Request. That's really kind of the bulk of this passage, the second half of this passage, which is the first extended prayer in the Scriptures. We see other mentions of prayer in the Bible. Here's the first extended interaction between God and a person. And so if you look at um, verses 22 and 23, the end of verse 22, Abraham stood before the Lord. And then Abraham drew near and said, that, that's prayer. He drew near to God, and he spoke to him. That's really the essence of prayer. 
drawing close, opening your mouth, speaking to God. And we see something really, two, two things I think very important here about Abram's prayer, Abraham's prayer. First of all, how Abraham prayed. Consider how he prayed. First of all, there's great humility in Abraham's prayer. Verse 27, <clears throat> Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. It's like Abraham is just amazed that he has the opportunity to speak to God. I'm just this, this lowly, finite creature, and here I am speaking to God. Verse 32 also, he says, oh, oh, Lord, please don't be angry. I mean, if I could just say this one more thing, you know, please be patient. I know I've been talking a lot here, God. Please don't be angry. I got one more thing to say. There's just this great humility in, in Abraham. There's this wonderful kind of reverence, this submissiveness, this, this carefulness about his prayer. And, and that ought to characterize our prayers, friends. We're, we're coming into the presence of the almighty, holy creator of the universe, uh, that, that is not a time to be casual and flippant. There's a humility that should characterize our prayers. But here's the amazing thing is that not only is Abraham's prayer humble, it's also bold. It's bold at the same time. He, he, he's making these requests to God. He says, um, <clears throat> you know, will you spare the city if there's 50 righteous fan, found? And God says, yeah. And he says, well, how about if there's 40? And God says, yeah. And you can just imagine Abraham thinking, well, Let's keep, let's keep at this. How about 20? Yeah, all right. How about 10? You know, he just keeps pushing it. You know, he doesn't like hold back. Okay, I got what I wanted with 50, so now I'm done. He just keeps pushing God. There's, there's a boldness here that should also characterize our prayers. And so there's a wonderful model here for all of our prayers. We are humble when we come into the presence of God. We don't presume that he will answer our prayers. He is not obligated to do what we ask him to do. So we come with humility, but we come bold too. Ask for big things from God. Ask for things that require faith. Ask for things that nobody else would ask for. That's what Abraham is doing. God said, I'm gonna destroy the city. And basically Abraham is saying, don't destroy the city. That's a bold prayer. And so we see that about how Abraham prayed, a prayer of boldness and humility. But the second thing to consider here is what Abraham prayed for. And I think here's what we see, kind of the most remarkable part of the passage. <clears throat> what, what did he pray for? We know of Abraham as a man of faith. That's his reputation. But here in this passage, we see Abraham, the man of compassion. Because what is he praying for? What does he want? He wants mercy for Sodom. The wicked, rebellious, adulterous, lying, sexual, immoral people who refuse to repent and proclaim their sin. These wicked people, and Abraham is moved by mercy. He wants them to be saved. Now you could say, well really the reason that Abraham wants this city to be saved is because his nephew Lot is there. And really all he wants to do is save Lot and his family. I'm sure he's concerned about Lot, but there's a couple places here, if you look at verse 28, where <clears throat> Abraham says, suppose five of the 50 are lacking, will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? 
I mean, fact is, he doesn't ask specifically for Lot and his family. He wants the whole city to be spared. He has a heart of compassion and mercy for the wicked. Does that characterize your heart? When you think of the people who you disagree with the most, when you think of the people who in your mind are just the most objectionable people, do you have a heart of mercy for them? There's this wonderful passage in Luke chapter 9 where the disciples, along with Jesus, they go into this city, and the city does not receive what Jesus has to say, and then James and John, they come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, should we rain down fire from heaven on those people? I mean, you wonder if he was thinking of Sodom, right? Fire from heaven. Oh, here's these people. They don't think like we do. Let's kill them. That's, that's James and John's attitude. They're not received. They're not doing what we want them to do. Judge them, God. Judge them. Inflict pain on them. Eliminate them. Isn't that the way we think a lot? We want to see those we disagree with. We want to see those who are different than us very often. We want to see them judged. Friends, I would suggest to you that perhaps rather than calling down judgment upon our enemies, we ought to pray for them. Think about the person, the people, whoever it is that you're wrestling with the most. Your heart is just agitated about those people or that person and what they do and what they think and how they live. Today, go home and pray for them. Pray that God would have mercy on them. That's what Abraham did. And let's see what happens in your heart as a result. So Abraham prays, Abraham prays here for for mercy, but one other thing here is that just notice notice Abraham's reasoning as he is kind of bartering with God here about whether God's going to destroy the city or not, and and we see it again in verse 25. Uh, Here's how Abraham begins to think about this. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. So this is Abraham's concern. It's, God, please don't kill the righteous when you destroy the wicked. You know, in other words, God, please don't treat the righteous as if they're wicked. Don't inflict judgment on the righteous because of the wicked. And so that's the basis of his plea. But it's like, as Abraham's prayer continues, it's like he begins to reverse that. And he thinks, well, if it's possible that the righteous would be judged because of the wicked... I wonder if it's possible if the wicked could be saved because of the righteous. And so that, that's kind of the reasoning that he begins bringing to God. And so he says, all right, God, how about 50 righteous? Would you spare the wicked because of that? And God says, yeah. And then he says 40, and then he says 30, and he kind of winds it down. But the motivation for Abraham praying this way is, is he's thinking like this. He's thinking, is it possible that the sin found in Sodom could be covered by the righteous? Is it possible that the wicked could actually be treated with grace and kindness because of a certain number of righteous people found in the city? And the instrumental thing we've got to see here is that every time Abraham asks that question, God says, yes. Yeah, I will do that, God says. You give me a righteous group of people, I will spare the wicked. I'll forgive them. I'll treat them with grace. I won't judge them. So, what happens? We get to the very end of the passage, 
And Abraham says, how about for the sake of 10? And God answers in verse 32, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Now, why did Abraham end at 10? I, you know, we can talk about that. There's a lot of different theories. But for whatever reason, Abraham ends his prayer, and he leaves, and God leaves. And then you're left hanging, right? Well, did God find 10 righteous people or not? <laughs> What's gonna happen? Did he find the righteous people necessary in order to spare the city? The answer is no. And we know that because you go to chapter 19, again, what we'll look at next week, and we see that the fire and brimstone gets rained down on Sodom. He didn't find the righteous people he was hoping to find. But friends, the principle still stands. God will refrain from judgment if he can find someone righteous. He will. So, has he found someone righteous? Has that righteous person been found? 1 Peter 3 tells us, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Yes, God has found that righteous person. He didn't just find him, he sent him. <laughs> he sent his son into the world, the righteous, who would suffer on the cross for us, so that as God looks on the righteous, he will not treat us who trust in him the way we ought to be treated. That Jesus' righteousness gets given to us, imputed to us, transferred to us who trust in him. God doesn't need 50 righteous. He doesn't need 40. He doesn't need 30. He doesn't need 20. He doesn't need 10. He just needs one. And Jesus is the one. And so, friends, if your trust is in him today, if your hope is in him know that there's no condemnation for you or her in Christ Jesus. And friends, if you don't know, if you're a Christian, and you wonder, am I gonna come under this judgment, that judgment that came upon Sodom, here's what you need to do. You need to pray to God, you need to, to go to him, and you need to say, Lord, I am a sinner and I deserve your judgment, but thank you that you sent a righteous savior, and I receive him and believe on him. I receive him as my savior. And now help me to follow him and to live a life of righteousness. Not to earn any favor that you offer, but because you have freed me from judgment. Which is motivation enough to seek righteousness in our lives. So, believe in Jesus. Trust in him. If you haven't done that, do that today and you can have the assurance that the judgment of God will not fall on you. And that's something to rejoice in. Lord, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for its richness. We thank you for all that we can learn about you in it, and we thank you so much, Lord, for taking the judgment that we deserve away from us in your Son, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.